This is the Living Clean Podcast. This podcast is not meant to replace meetings, sponsorship, step work, or service. This podcast is meant to be another tool in your recovery toolbox. Our guests are here to share their experience, strength, and hope with recovery through Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you for joining us. All right, welcome back to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm riding solo today as far as co-host goes. My name's Mason S. I'm an addict. With me today, very special guest, Mr. J.W. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I, I really appreciate you asking me to be here. Oh, yeah. Well, our topic today is IP number seven, Am I an Addict? And when I got to thinking about this, you know, having heard you share some of your experience with this IP, I couldn't think of nobody else I'd rather have come on here and do it. So he's the first one that came to mind. Well, I appreciate that. I tell you, so it was actually the first piece of NA literature I ever read. And I thought, you know, it was in that uh, introductory guide that I found by the commode there in that Texas penitentiary. And I thought it was really some stupid questions. (laughs) I didn't realize that it was for people that weren't sure if they were an addict or not. And, and to be honest with you at that time, I really hadn't thought about being an addict. I mean, I knew I was a criminal. I was locked up again and I knew I lived an outlaw life, but I never really thought about being an addict. Drugs was just something we used to make money and get high with. And to me, an addict was somebody that, you know, in the 80s, well, the 70s was just a big party. I mean, it was fun. The disease hadn't progressed to a point to where it was not working yet. And uh, But the 80s, when crack came along, that's who I thought were addicts. Uh, They'd robbed their grandmother, and they was, you know, and, and I had had found the rent-a-girls and, and I had bought a lot of crack. I never smoked none of it, but I'd bought a lot of it for my, you know, my girlfriends and, uh, <laughs> the Mrs. Right now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I would, there was a couple of them that, you know, were regulars and, uh, I would ask them, I said, how in the world did y'all get to having to do this? And, one girl talked about her husband was a crack dealer and, and, you know, after he got locked up, the only thing she had to sell was herself. And I don't know. I, I never really thought about being like that. Uh, I didn't understand the self-made prison and it was, I was ignorant to the disease concept Um, but what really the first thing that made me pause was it says am i an addict only you can answer this question and of course i've been labeled a lot of things most of my life by other people you know mainly crazy and they just ask me what is wrong with you <laughs> and you know things like that and so i had this idea of who i was based on what everybody else thought and then of course i'm working step one again and of course, it's different now, but one of the things that I ask is, is uh, when did you know what formally brought you to working step one? And I thought about lying to my kids. And that really was what started me thinking something ain't right. If I got a lie to my kids about this, and then the weight of that got so daggum heavy, you know, me and their mom got a divorce and she wouldn't let me see my kids hardly at all because I wouldn't come home. And uh, so there was a lot of questions that I didn't have answers for. I just knew I felt like a worthless piece of shit and deserved to be locked up. You know, my dad taught me right from wrong and my mom did too. And, and I knew what I was doing was outside the boundaries of what society said was acceptable because I'd been locked up before. And uh, So when people would say, what is wrong with you, what's the first things that run through your mind? 
when I was a kid, I didn't know because I was always going against what ordinary folks, you know, I don't call anybody normal, but what, you know, when we were at school, most kids were compliant and I wasn't. Um, and I really can't tell you what it was that I was rebelling against. Hell, I was a good kid up until I started school and then, you know, getting bullied and picked on. And, and then I didn't know we were poor till I went to school. Um, the neighborhood I was raised up in, you know, our family was kind of ostracized because my dad wasn't in the clan. And so we didn't have a whole lot of people come over. And I just thought all kids played by themselves and made up stories in their head like I did. And then when I got to school, man, it was, uh, I didn't really want to be there, you know, and so whatever they told me to do, I usually, and I think looking back at it after a while, I think I did most of that because I could get a reaction out of them. Yeah. Cause they'd get all tore up. I mean, <laughs> and yeah. then back then, hell, I'll be 68 at the end of this month. They'd beat the hell out of you at school. And even your neighbors, if they saw you doing something, they'd jerk your ass up and tune you up. I mean, you didn't go home crying to your mom and daddy like people do now. They, you know, get their parents come advocate for them. And, but shit, my daddy would have wore my ass out again. So what was wrong with me? I don't know. You know, after a while, I got to believing because, I mean, it, it, it was evident that I wasn't like ordinary folks. You know, I went against the grain and of course, back in the seventies, everybody was, there was a lot of change going on. And, uh, <clears throat> a lot of us were rebelling against Vietnam, civil rights, you know, a lot of different things was going on, a lot of change and people were speaking out and it pissed a lot of people off. Um, especially the racial stuff in, in Vietnam, you know, I, I was in high school and was called all kind of names cause I had black friends, you know, and, and, and I was against the war and, uh, cause I had friends that would come back and they never were the same after they got back from over there. And they told me, said, man, don't go where go to Canada, whatever you do, don't go to Vietnam. <laughs> So I guess it was just a, a lot of the times, you know, of, of us being hippies and, you know, smoking dope and just stuff like that just was not acceptable back then. Right. Uh, and two, I don't think addiction was looked at the way it is today. It was more in the, um, you know, people viewed it as, lower class people had that problem, you know, in the ghettos and well, everybody that used was put into one category. Yeah. Yeah. Dopers. That's the stigma was very strong back then about a lot of things, not just drugs, but especially about drugs, you know, um, well, we've come to learn now that not everybody that uses is necessarily an addict. Right. Um, yeah. And I think two things, you know, with the way, uh, the opioid crisis. Hell, there was an opioid crisis going on through Vietnam. You know, they bringing guys were coming back hooked on heroin way back then, and even before then. You know, um, hell, back when Jimmy K was going to, to to AA, morphine addicts from World War II and the Korean War. Uh, so, I mean, it's been a problem for a long time that. I think people are more educated today than they've ever been because of the opioid crisis, maybe. But um, I don't know. The solution's still the same. I know that. (laughs) It don't matter what time of the day it is. Uh, But, yeah, this this pamphlet really uh, perplexed me at first, you know, like, these are some really stupid questions because I was answering yes to them. And anybody that was in my realm of, of circle 
would have answered yes to, to all of these questions or, or a good bit of them anyway. Uh, so that's kind of where I was at it and being ignorant to the disease concept, because in this pamphlet, it talks about that we're not responsible for our, um, we're not, see, it says we could, uh, although we are not responsible for our disease, we are responsible for our recovery. I didn't understand what they were talking about the disease. Uh, I knew I was bad. That was my take on it, is I'm just a sorry piece of shit that can't get right, and that's why I'm in prison, and I do bad things. So that's really my problem is I'm bad, <laughs> you know? I didn't understand the disease part of it do you for feel, a long time. Do you feel like, um, you know, I think about that that spot in the basic text, and I'm I'm looking for it. It may have been in step two or the or at the end of step one where it talks about some of us were relieved to find out that we were addicts. Yeah. You know, because for the first time, kind of like what you were talking about, you know, you knew something was wrong, but forever, I guess for years, you weren't able to actually put your finger on it. But to finally say, hey, this may be what everybody's talking about. What's wrong with me? I think the biggest relief for me was when I found out it could be treated. Yeah. That I didn't have to live that way anymore, that there was a, a way out and there was a solution and, and simple abstinence wasn't, it was the beginning, but it took me a while to understand that once the substance is gone, then I start really dealing with the problem. <laughs> you yeah. know, it ain't the drugs that's the problem. L.A. was a solution for a long time, man. You know, going back to being bullied and having to keep secrets. And, you know, we come up through a time where you just did not talk about stuff out loud. You didn't reveal you weren't vulnerable. I mean, if you was vulnerable to somebody, you had to trust them damn near where you lie to talk about things of how you felt inside or if somebody abused you or, or whatever, I mean, we were taught real early. You just don't talk about that kind of thing. You know, I remember a friend of mine, we were in the sixth grade and, and somebody said the word ministration and the teacher got just, she went nuts. She said, you don't even know what that means. And he said, yeah, I do. Now we're 11, 12 year old kids. And she was claiming that we didn't know what, which I didn't know at that time what ministration was. So she made him go out in the hall and tell her and swear to God he wouldn't tell nobody. And so, of course, after class was over, he was my best friend. And I said, well, what'd y'all talk about? I said, I can't tell you. I said, oh, you're going to tell me, motherfucker. <laughs> and, uh, Anyway, I got educated on the, you know, the biological way that the women, you know, produce an egg. Right. And uh, a whole lot of other things that day, too, about how men produce, you know, what we produce. And, I mean, it was an educational thing. So I come up through a time when you just didn't talk about things like that, uh, especially to your children. Yeah. We had to find out when it was written on the bathroom wall. <laughs> you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, they talk about like your parents' generation was the greatest generation that's ever lived. And while there yeah. was, if you look back, you know, people always reminisce about things that they wish were different, but yeah. some of the things were mistakes too. You know, there yeah. was a lot of mistakes made and, and some of that's what, you know, what, we're coming to find out at this day and age is that that whole we don't talk about nothing we don't share our feelings especially among men i can't i don't know what it was like with women i know they had their own challenges that were because they were even looked at as equals for the longest amount of time right you know and still still to this day sometimes they struggle with with being considered equal um you know so they had their own challenges but i know for us you you yeah you know my dad my dad was would be in close to in his mid eighties now, so I was kind of raised 
with that same mentality, you know, when, what happens in the house kind of stays in this house and, you know, we don't go talking to strangers about what happens in here. And like you said, you get your ass whooped for doing shit like that. Yeah. Well, and even, even at home, you know, kids were seen and not heard. You speak if you were spoken to and it was yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Please. And thank you. Uh, we were taught respect. I don't know if that was respect so much as it, as it was um, fear. Fear, yeah. You know, people talk about respect. Shit, I was scared to death. Uh, I don't know how much, you know, I respected my parents to a point that I knew they took care of me, but um, it was more about fear. You know, you'd ask why, it's because I told you so, that's why. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that that was just kind of how I was raised up. Do you feel that's why, like, so many people in that time, like, like you were talking about in the seventies and stuff, wanted to rebel? Is because that was going I on. I think so we found out that we had been lied to long enough that uh, we didn't trust anybody for damn sure. You right. know, uh, the man was always out to get us. And it was us against them. And even like today, there was some division there on ideology and way we were raised. And we started thinking for ourselves and, and it was kind of, uh, man, it went against the grain. I'm going to tell you, uh, I was, I was, uh, pretty, <sighs> rebellious i guess you'd call the word rebellious against anything that kind of went against free thinking of you know like let me make my own decisions and who are you to tell me what to do when all i'm trying to do is have fun yeah and of course you know my ideal fun was you know pretty risky <laughs> uh Looking back at it, there was uh, a time when I think it was more about getting a reaction than it was about a true uh, idea that I'm doing the right thing because it's right. It was more about, and I, there was some of that in there, but it was more about pissing people off more than anything after a while, you know, because <laughs> uh, I could get them, boy, I could get them going. I mean, I guess both sides had had things that they believed in that was good, and then both sides yeah. had things they believed in that wasn't as good. And yeah, and and I think too, coming out of the fifties into the sixties, there was a lot of change where wholesomeness and virtue and things like that. Kids started, you know, finding out about sex, and and then of course the the out in out in the west, you know, they free love and peace and groove and you know all that kind of stuff we kind of got was behind down here in the south on some of that oh no doubt. <laughs> but you know it it, it sounded good yeah. and uh hell we love the music man the music was uh a lot different coming up than what my dad and them listened to and uh i don't know it was just a whole movement of uh it, you know, leave me alone and I'll be okay. Right. I'm not hurting you. So why are you so pissed off? You know, <laughs> but, and then drugs come into play. And of course, you know, knowing what I know about the disease now, you know, it isolated us and it, it gave us a different perspective about, I mean, we lived in a subculture and we knew we weren't in the mainstream of, you know, I knew that I was different than the kids I grew up with. They went on to get jobs and, and have families and have homes and, and shit. I still running them up, you know, in my twenties and I got married and had kids and, but I was still an outlaw and I just couldn't get away from that lifestyle. And that's where the conflict be began for me was, I wanted my kids to have it different than I did. And I taught them to be free thinkers, but just be able to suffer the consequence. If you went against 
rules and regulations and stuff, you know, be, be careful because you're going to have to take your medicine if you don't. Yeah. That's what I was taught. My parents never bailed me out of shit. Uh, I had to do my time when I did the crime, you know, and, uh, but I think that, uh, I also learned some values from them of service. I watched my parents do service in the community. And after I got clean, I found a community I could work in and, you know, I'm, I'm just very grateful that they saw me get clean and stay clean and be the son that they always wanted me to be before they died. You know, that that's one of my greatest gifts. I think I was given was some time with my dad and my mother after I got out of prison and got involved in NA and started learning some values that <clears throat> they had tried to teach me that I saw, you know, people in NA, you know, the principles never change no matter the circumstance or the times. No. The principles are always the same. It's just how do we apply them in certain communities for certain people that, you know, where that's one thing I learned from my parents is if you see a need and you can feel it, don't ask somebody else to do it. Go on and do it yourself because they need it right then. And uh, that was a good quality that I learned from them is if they could give, they did. Yeah. And then they would get with groups of people that were doing that. And so I had a great example of living within a community. My mother was in the church. My dad was in the community doing work. And uh, so I found the community to serve in, through Narcotics Anonymous. And I really believe in our literature, you know, written by addicts, for addicts. Who else would come up with some of the stuff that they came up with it's <clears throat> they put it in words that i can understand <clears throat> and then of course the solution doesn't ever change it just how do we apply that to our daily lives you know and it's really simple it, i had to get past to the, trying to figure it all out and yeah. realize it's already been figured out you were talking about um you know, some of your parents' virtues and stuff. What I thought, what I, what I come to find out is when I finally got involved in NA and started learning about the principles and how they don't change, I, up until that point in my life, every situation that I was in, I tried to figure it out by myself. And now I found myself thinking back, like when situations with the kids here, even I think back to how did my daddy handle this situation or how did my parents or how did my grandparents, you know, how do they, so I, uh, their experience is helping me out even to this point, but up until I got into NA and got kind of got out of that selfish self-centered mindset, I thought I knew everything and could figure everything out, but it's just cool to kind of, you know, do what your parents did and know that that's where that came from. So their, their legacy kind of lives on through you. It's, it's pretty interesting. It is. And the thing about, for me, uh, the reason it took, <clears throat> the reason it took me so long to really let go of some of those ideas, I'd lived it so long of, you know, what is wrong with you? Well, there's something wrong with me. I'm bad. Uh, that was ingrained in my head so deeply because I'd lied, cheated, and stole most of my life. And I knew that was wrong. And then living that lifestyle of you never be vulnerable, you don't show weakness. I brought all that stuff into NA and got in with some people that were like that as well. You know, my mother used to say birds of a feather flock together. And so my first sponsor, he was, he, he could talk a good recovery. It's just, he couldn't live it. And I was right there with him and we were used to shaming each other and used to saying things in an ugly way, a hurtful way. Uh, and, and that was slowly, that was slow to leave. Um, uh, I had to be. 
I remember going, me and Debbie talked about this the other night on New Year's Eve. Our first NA date was a New Year's Eve function back in 2007. And we got there and, and the girl that was speaking, a girl named Susan from over in Memphis, she was talking about brutal honesty. And I had been told, man, you are brutally honest. And she said it was more about being brutal than it was about being honest. And I'll never forget how I felt. I felt ashamed for being brutal instead of really being honest. Um, so that was a turning point. Of, and now could I change that right away? No, I didn't change it right away. But she was kind of the person that opened that door that it was very difficult even when I walked through it to actually live from it. And, you know, uh, my first sponsor relapsed and then I got my, the one I got now. Uh, and he is one of the most unbrutal people that I know. Um, so he helped me tremendously become a salter gentler man and, and, uh, and try to think about, you know, most of my wives have said, it's not what you say, it's how you say it that's hurtful. And other people would tell me that, you know, you're an asshole. And it was about the way that I I presented the message. You know, it was hard because yeah. I was a hard person. And that was slow to change. Yeah. Didn't one of your wives tell you one time that your man pride was going to kill you? Yeah, my second wife. She would say that. <laughs> and another thing that she helped me with uh, was I was the disease concept. I'd come back from a meeting and I'd say, them some bitches talking about that goddamn disease. They ain't them some bitches is trying to cop out saying they sick. They ain't fucking sick. They're just stupid. They might, you know, and I'd be so fucking mad she'd be looking at me and she's what are you so mad about i said that motherfuckers are just you know, trying to blame it on a disease they ain't fucking sick and she said look at one day she said i said i just don't understand this disease concept bullshit and she said look at the disease man dis ease oh that was a revelation because wow. I had been in disease most of my life and was in disease right then. And so she opened that door for me to really think about. And then I went to school to be a counselor and all that stuff. And so I, I, I got a lot of scientific information about the brain. And, you know, it was it, being informed is one thing, but really understanding the science of addiction was was an eye opener for me. It answered a whole lot of the whys that nobody else could answer for me. Is that you know genetically I was predisposed to addiction because it ran in my family, um, the environment. You know I had something extra that ordinary people don't have, and it was just like heart disease or. I mean, hell, that's why insurance companies will pay for treatment. It's a medical issue. It's yeah. scientifically proven. So, you know, and I was more about science than I was any other kind of ideas. Yeah. Um, show me some proof, you know. And uh, so the, the spiritual end of it was kind of hard for me, too, because of that. This God as we understood him. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was way too Baptist for me. <laughs> <laughs> and i'd rejected that a long time i believe more and if the conditions are right and you're given enough time it'll happen yeah you know evolution or whatever and uh you know we we found the missing link in jim glock so we know that <laughs> he's, you know he's yeah. got them chimpanzee hands and yeah hell that proved it right there you know what's interesting uh we get unlike a lot of things like you take the the universe for example there's still a lot of questions about is there something spiritual involved within the universe but yeah. in our fellowship we get not only evidence of the scientific side being right but we get evidence of 
the spiritual side that there's a spiritual influence inside there too. So I think that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, that was another thing my second wife would talk about. She taught me about synchronicity. Um, Carl Young talks about that. And the thing about that is I can't explain it. I just know when it happens. And I believe that there's an energy there um, that connects us all. You know, my current wife asked me one time, she said, y'all talk about spirituality all the time. What is spirituality? And I said, well, for me, it's a connection. I am connected to everything in the universe, the universe, whatever you want to call it. And I can feel that connection when I'm spiritually fit. Uh, now, if I get in myself, I kind of sever that connection. And, and, you know, I'm, a, I'm my own legend in my own mind, you know, and uh, I've got it all worked out. Just follow me. Shit, we'll be all right. Or just leave me alone. Either one be works fine. You know. <laughs> hey, so since we're talking about am I an addict and you've had a lot of time to reflect back on when you can see when the disease become active. I heard you tell a story one time about it was your uncle or somebody used to work on cars and you went yep. and drank beer there for it. Was that the first time you remember? Yeah. Uh, he had a bunch of old men that would hang out at his house. Well, a bunch of men hanging out and most of them were alcoholics, you know, and they drank every day and, Every once in a while, one of them would leave one laying around and I'd squirrel it away. And, and, you know, I got enough, went and got my best friend. And of course we copped a buzz and I was about 10 years old and wrestling around on the ground like kids would do. And all of a sudden he sat up and said, I'm going to go home and lay down. I said, what, what the hell? Why are you going home? He said, I feel funny. I said, me too. You know, I mean. And I didn't understand it at that time because he got up and went home. But what had happened, he had an ordinary brain and his brain said something ain't right. You need to go take care, you know, take care of yourself because you can't see straight, walk straight, talk straight, you know. And hell, my brain said, where can you get some more? Right. And that's what I did from, and you know, it talks about that, how we lose interest in things that are important to us as the disease progresses. And so we played basketball all the time. Well, I would go play basketball, but I would want to hang out with older kids because I thought maybe they would have something. And I kept doing that, and that became more important than going and playing ball. And so I lost interest in pretty much anything that, was it uh, the one of the questions says um do you avoid people or places that do not approve of you using drugs i said what the fuck would i want to go around somebody that's gonna be i don't approve of that you know that's stupid uh <clears throat> but i started hanging around places where who hauls you know uh, hell back then I was big for my age time I was 15 I was driving and I found a few bars I could go in as long as I didn't cause trouble they didn't give a shit um so I'd hung, hang out in bars and and hang out in pool halls and found liquor stores that would let me buy liquor and hell at the time I was 15 16 17 I was full-blown man it was on you know and that was my daily grind is I can't go to school because they don't like me being fucked up at school. And then they're going to make me answer some questions that I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. What is a verb? Who gives a fuck? Give me a drink, you know? <laughs> Just shit. Like, I mean, I can look back at it now while I was in the grips of it. Shit, the denial was so thick. Uh, I couldn't see anything but Leave me to fuck alone, man. I didn't have a problem till you come along, you know? Well, that's what's wrong with me. You won't leave me the fuck alone. You won't alone. leave me alone. <laughs> what about uh, number 10? Where did you think about number 10 uh, when you read it for the first time? Where was you sitting when you read it? I was it? sitting on a commode in, 
Fucking Texas Penitentiary. Have you ever been arrested? <laughs> the first time I was arrested, uh, we had went to rob a drugstore and <clears throat> we got pulled over and I had a pistol under my seat. So I got arrested for the first time for a concealed weapon, leaving the scene of 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 botched burglary. We didn't get anything. And then my first felony was I, I broke into a drugstore. And so drugs has been the root of every one of my incarceration. Um, you know, I've been locked up in three different states and all of them were drug charges or stemming from drugs. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I would say I had a drug problem. Do you think that's number 29? Do you think you might have a drug problem? I thought the only time I thought I had a problem was when I didn't have any. That was the problem. <laughs> it makes me think about, you know, being out there with the, I work with a lot of the guys out at the jail and um, you were talking about some of the things that go on inside the brain a minute ago. And one of the examples that I usually use with them is, you know, not everybody that gets a DUI or gets a simple possession is necessarily an addict. Uh, the difference is, is those people will usually make changes in their life. The normal people will to ensure that that don't ever happen again. Yeah. So where we don't ever consider the option of not using again, like number 17 says, do you feel it is impossible for you to live without drugs? Well, we don't yeah. even consider that question. No. You know, like that question hadn't even occurred to me. Like that would possible. That's not even, yeah, no, that's not even rational. That ain't even in the, in the yeah. universe I live in. Yeah. I really, the thing that get, you know, before I found this literature, I would ask people, because I was thinking I want to get my kids back. And so when I got locked up, I'd used the day before, April the 20th, I used talking to the police on the phone. I was smoking a joint while I was talking to the NARC. I knew they were coming back up there the next day and had a, I'm sure they had a warrant, you know, in my mind. Uh, why would they be coming? But um, <clears throat> what occurred to me is what I'm trying to say here. I, I found my thought again um, is I knew I couldn't use while I was in jail. I knew I couldn't continue that way. I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. So I would ask people, what are you going to do when you get out? I, you know, I learned real early on. My dad taught me, if you want to learn how to do a job, you go help people do that job. You watch them. And that's how I learned how to use drugs and be a criminal. I hung around with people that were criminal and drug addicts. And I'll watch what they did. Um, so I would ask them, and I guarantee you, nine, at least 99% of the people said, when I asked them, what are you going to do when you get out? And I said, well, I'm going to try not to get caught again. They had no plans on doing anything different other than being a smarter criminal. And I knew that wasn't going to work for me because as smart as I was, I was in a penitentiary again, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I was looking for something that was different. I just didn't know what it was. And I had tried religion. Um, I knew I was crazy, but I, I didn't figure a doctor could fix that. You know, there's plenty of crazy people running around. But uh, one of the places in here that really caught my attention was, am I an addict? This is a question only you can answer. We found that we all answer different numbers of these questions, yes. The actual number of yes responses wasn't as important as how we felt inside and how addiction had affected our lives. How I felt inside was lost. You know, what am I going to do now? I've lived this way so long. I don't know how to do anything else. Yeah, I could get a job. I could work. 
But I knew that wasn't a solution. There was something inside of me that was missing. Right. And how I felt inside was I felt a lot of guilt and shame about my kids. And, you know, it was like, it says some of these questions don't even mention drugs. This was because addiction is an insidious disease that affects all areas of our lives. Even those areas which seem at first to have little to do with drugs. My life was a shambles, not because of drugs, but because of what was left after the drugs were gone. Yeah. You know, when I got high, it was to change the way that I felt. I liked that feeling. Yeah. I wanted that feeling of oblivion where nothing really mattered. Nothing could bother me. Just leave me to fuck alone. Let me put my heads on headphones and listen to Dark Side of the Moon and I'll be okay. I had this that sentence underlined you just read. This is because addiction is an insidious disease that affects all areas of our lives. Even those areas we seem at first to have little to do with drugs. <clears throat> you kind of talked about your process um, with coming to grips or come to terms with this being a disease. But when did you start to notice that it affected other areas of your life? I think my thinking was so screwed up the self-centered, self-obsessed, self, you know, I could walk down through a damn grocery store. And if a woman smiled at me, by the time I got to the end of the aisle, we was married or at least hooked up. And then, you know, I'd go around to the bread rack. And by then, hell, we done had a couple of kids. And, you know, we, by the time I was checking out, she, she was cheating on me or, you know, wanting me to quit drinking or something. And then by the time we got in the parking lot, I was looking for her so I could blow her damn brains out. And all that shit went on in my head because the woman smiled at me. Yeah. So the self-obsession, it was all about what went on the side of my head. I knew that that was something that after I had been locked up for, you know, a year or so, my brain had cleared up enough that I started to think different. I started to see things differently. Um, now there were still some concepts like freedom. Uh, there was, uh, you know, that was just not being confined. Yeah. I hadn't got to the place where I'm at today of freedom is I have a choice. You know, I get to choose instead of the disease requiring it. Um, so there was a lot of things, in, even like surrender, you know, that was laying down my arms and, and being led away and changed. Today, I just don't have to fight me anymore. Right. In the book, it says we just don't have to fight anymore. Well, I've added me in there. I don't have to fight me because I love me today. Um, that took a long time. I know when they used to read how it works and they got to, we become acceptable, responsible, productive members of society. I could be responsible and productive, but I was not acceptable yeah. for a long time after I got clean. I mean, I just didn't feel it for a long, until Tim started working with me on self-esteem and things like that. Um, I didn't really have that self-love or self-worth that I have today. It just wasn't there. That belief, that truth was really hard to break through, uh, that it was a lie. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the thing of it is, is, you know, when we get over here in this, pamphlet it says we were searching for an answer when we reached out and found narcotics anonymous we came to our first meeting in defeat and didn't know what to expect i had no idea what na was going to do for me the steps even the traditions uh you know the principles that they teach us i had no concept of that i had no point of reference yeah. that there was a process. I, I My second wife got me to go to therapy 
that helped me answer some of the whys. And I, I got to a point where, I, okay, I can work some steps on this now. I know what it is. And this process is working really well. So I went to therapy for about a year, and then I thought, yeah, I don't want to go there no more. I'm going to just get with my sponsor and see if we can work through some of these issues. And and we have. And it's about doing something different. But I had, I think the belief had to be there to begin with for me. You know, it says we don't think our way into a better way of living. We live our way into a better way of thinking. But I think sometimes our our belief system has to change too to to think that we're uh, we're worth it and that we have something to um, to offer within our, you know our real values and being ourselves. So I think those concepts that I've learned in NA. I didn't have a point of reference at first, but now I do. And it's really helped me to be around people that have had that experience like Ryan and Jim and Damon and, and you know, the different ones that have been around for a while that, that have experienced some of that change uh, inside. Hell, I just didn't have the people around me that were doing it in the very beginning. We could talk a good game, but we really couldn't live it. And so it was difficult to practice it if you didn't have anybody to practice it with. I asked you that because I can remember vividly when it happened for me. Uh, I was uh, six months clean and... I had copped a little resentment over something stupid over somebody in the meetings. And I got up in the middle of the meeting and walked out and left. And in my mind, I don't, I think I'd made my mind up that I wasn't ever going to go back. (laughs) And I, I remember my sponsor at the time, after about a week, he called me and he's like, what's going on? And of course my initial response was, Oh, nothing's going on. Everything everything's fine he just kept prying and prying and finally i unloaded all this stuff that i was feeling you know it was every i was pointing the finger at everybody else everybody else's fault and uh he said well i just want to tell you one thing he said if you keep acting like you were acting when you were using pretty soon you're gonna to have to use to justify how you're acting yeah and i think that's when it clicked for me that it was more about like it's more about you know, a change in my attitudes and behaviors than it is complete abstinence. Complete abstinence is is obviously one of the goals, but it's not the ultimate fixer. You know, there was a lot of work that was going to have to be done. Yeah. And I think too, Mason, it it it, it goes into what is what what is the purpose of working steps and doing service and things like that. It's it's more about being selfless and, and finding those places within us that were empty and, and finding the right thing that fits to put in there. Uh, hell, I see a lot of people using, trying to use outside things, not even drugs, just buying and spending. And, uh, you know, adrenaline was my first drug of choice and it came from within you know all i had to do was almost get caught or almost get killed or whatever it was that made that you know put myself at risk to feel something different that was way too long before i ever picked up and uh so there was something missing i think from the very beginning and it was that connection with others like we talk about being vulnerable our sponsorship family how close we are and how it's very easy for me to call you and say hey here's what i'm feeling today you know i'm scared um you know my wife has got uh parkinson's and she's just now she's had it for eight years got diagnosed eight years ago she's just now 
in the past six months even been willing to talk about it and talk about her fear. Yeah. And, uh, and, and me being able to say, well, I'm afraid too, but that doesn't change how I feel about you and how I plan on being here. Who's to say that I ain't going to go first. And we've talked about that. One of us is going to be left here alone if we don't die in a fire crash of some sort together. Uh, and for somebody my age, it's easy for me to talk about that, but it's not easy for her to talk about it. And she, she'll say, I don't want to talk about that. And I said, well, we need to because it's coming. And us avoiding that conversation is not going to tell me how you feel or what you want. If that does happen, <clears throat> you know, that we're going to have to have some outside help maybe, or, you know, she was saying that she, <laughs> she read an 83 page article about Parkinson. I said, quit reading that shit. You've got it. What difference does it make? It's just scaring you about what's to come. Uh, I said, hell, the way we live, we love to die of a heart attack first because we don't eat right. Who's to say that Parkinson's is going to get you? Right. So having those honest dialogue was easy for me because I'm used to doing that in a meeting. Just talking honestly about how I feel. And you know that that part of that um of that um pamphlet that says you know how we felt inside we share that with others we don't feel as it as acutely now that does that mean that feeling goes away no it's just that i've shared it with someone yeah and it's not all bottled up inside of me and it's gonna come out sideways when my wife says something crazy and I come back with something else crazy. And then before you know it, I've heard her feeling. Yeah. You know, and we can have an honest dialogue. And then I have to think about how I have to learn how to pause too. And how do I respond to her in a healthy way? You know, and not make her feel bad because she, she's scared. Yeah or worried or whatever it is, you know, I had to learn how to have a healthy nurturing relationship and be healthy and nurturing to have that kind of relationship. And then taught me that. And I had to understand that she's not in the fellowship. Right. I'm not necessarily sure she's not an addict. <laughs> she just ain't found the right dope yet. Right. Cause she's got some obsessive thinking. She's got all the, and I, people call that addict thinking. Hell, I think it's she just human thinking. It's not, we ain't got to the corner marketed on obsessing, uh, compulsion and in the, what we call character defects. Shit, it's just human. And fear causing us to do things that's, you know, that we don't normally do. It's not right unique to us either you know yeah i can uh i remember you know my dad was sick at the at the end of his life he when he found out he had cancer but he was faced at a crossroads too you know and we were kind of doing all that research for him you know here's what uh -huh. he's like well the way i see it is i got two choices i can either get busy living or i can get busy dying and he's yeah like, i'm not going to I'm going to focus on the living is because I can't do nothing about what's coming. It's out of my hands. And that's what Debbie and I have decided. And, and I keep reassuring her that, Hey, when fear comes, I always think, okay, let me look around. Is there a dog fixing to bite me? Is the police fixing to arrest me? And if the answer is no, what have I got to fear? You know, is the house on fire? It just, I, I want to look at where my feet are. 
is this generated in my head? Yeah, that is a possibility that that could happen someday, but that day ain't here yet. And we've actually talked a lot about let's just build some memories because that's what we've done so far. You know, we've been together 15 years and we've got some really good memories of taking trips and going to functions. And she's been real active in NA as a non-member showing up and people have come to love her just as probably more than <laughs> I have been told. If you ever leave her, we're keeping her and getting rid of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, one of the thing, of course, you touched on one of the parts of it, but this is the first time in the literature that we see the three disturbing realizations uh, that we're faced with. And number one, that our power, that we are powerless over addiction, our lives unmanageable. Two, although we are not responsible for our disease, we are responsible for our recovery. And three, we can no longer blame people, places, and things for our addiction. We must face our problems and our feelings. Do you think a lot of people have trouble with, um, uh, well, like you said earlier, you said you went to therapy and got questions to the wise. Um, do you think that in the beginning that the wise are not really as, as important as the fact that, in, that we are an addict and that there is a way to treat it? I think the most important thing is the how. Yeah. The whines will come later. You know, they're waiting on me. up. If I don't understand something today, I can let that go because of my experience of, well, hey, let's wait. The understanding's waiting on me up ahead. I don't have to understand it for it to work. All I got to do is my part. And because recovery is more about action than thinking for damn sure I'd be in a world of shit because <laughs> somebody said, uh, I think Tim said the other day, well, I'm just not that smart. And I said, well, thank God that's not a requirement because I'd be funny <laughs> if you had to be smart. Oh. And I've seen a lot of people try to outthink this thing and they're dead, man. You know, let me manage how much I use. And just add it, just the fucking disease convincing them that how hey, you could do a little bit, shit. But a little bit nowadays will kill your ass. I'm just grateful that I don't have that illusion to live through anymore. I'm an addict. January to the 28th is my birthday. And that meditation in the just for today is every day at it. I didn't write that book, but my God, I've taken notice that, hey, using is on my list of things to do every day for the rest of my life. It's just, it's down around, I always say number 13. I really don't know where it is, but it's down the list because I've got some important shit to do. You know, at 4.30 today, I had to be on this damn podcast. So, you know, I couldn't show up on it fucked up. Right. <laughs> make any sense. <laughs> so, not that I'm making any sense now, but at least it's not because I'm fucked up. But uh, I've just got some important shit to do. And the thing of it is, is I'm number one today. I care enough about me that I don't want to hurt me today because I know if I don't hurt me, I ain't got to hurt you. And that was a big uh, lesson to be learned along the way about self-love. You know, we'll love you till you can love yourself. I heard that so many times when I first got here because they could see this motherfucker don't love himself. The way he treats other people, he can't love himself. And that was evident uh, through my behavior. But Tim helped me with that, too. And I'm so grateful to have sponsorship in this fellowship. Uh, and then, you know, our, our family, sponsorship family goes, I mean, we're so connected, man, through those retreats. 
and just the effort that people put into the relationships that we have. Yeah, we are addicts, but we don't have to live that way anymore. There is, you know, like I said, the 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 greatest freedom I found was that it was, yeah, I'm an addict, but it can be treated. I just got to do my part. Yeah. And got to do for me what I can't do for myself. Yeah. It, uh, you know, <clears throat> talk about the sponsorship family and what it, what's interesting is, you know, most of the time the first person we kind of get intimate with in here is our sponsor, but when you can grow those relationships to where uh, you've got four, five, six, seven people that you can talk to at any time, man, it just, it really feels good. And knowing that, you know, and look, we're not all experts in certain areas and some of us have different experiences, but, you know, throughout the people that we've all met and we all know, uh, usually somebody has been through something that I've went through. Yep. Yep. And, you know, through the people we know, we, we might not have the solution, but we know the right person to call anyway. And that's, I, I and think that's the beauty about going to enough meetings and listening is you'll hear your story told, or they'll give you a different perspective on your story. They'll start telling your story up to a certain point, and then they've got a totally different take on it. Yeah. For me, that's where the diversity comes in. At first, it scared the shit out of me. I ain't like these motherfuckers here. Yeah. Look at that crackheaded motherfucker there. You yeah. Know, I'd sum you up in a heartbeat and put you in a little slot over there. Are you worth my fucking time or not? Right. You know, ego and pride and all that shit kept me isolated, even in the rooms, man. But today, the diversity is something that I cherish because in a meeting with 15 people, if everybody shares, I may get 15 different ways of looking at it. I may get five of one way, five of another way, and five of another way. It just depends on who's there. But I'm going to get a different point of reference. And sometimes I got to go around there and look over their shoulder to really understand what the fuck they're talking about. Cause I can't see it from where I'm sitting. Right. And that has taught me to, you know, don't judge somebody just cause you don't understand what the fuck they're going through. Won't you go with them and experience it or at least sit down with them and, and talk to them. To, and keep asking them, hey, can you say that in a different way? Because I, I still don't understand what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. And it may be somebody sitting over there on the sidelines go, well, JW dumbass, here's what he's fucking saying. And then they'll say it in a way that I can understand it. So it's a group. It's a we thing, man. It's, you know, the more people that are there, of course, the disease is going to show up too. You know, I've carried the motherfucker around with me plenty of times to meetings and uh, you just gotta take what you need and leave the rest. And that's the beauty of this thing. Can't nobody tell me how to recover. It I is, can, you know, I get to choose what I want to do. It is that little voice. that's kind of sitting in your ear going, you ain't like them. Or you're doing yeah. yeah. Look at that stupid motherfucker. Look at that stupid, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many times I thought that and then be doing the same goddamn thing they was doing five minutes later. Yep. And not realize it. Yep. Still feel like I'm, you know, all that in a bag of chips. No doubt. <laughs> well, JW, man, we're about out of time. I appreciate you coming on here and uh, sharing your experience with us, brother. And I love you, man. It's I love you too. Um, that's one thing that disease cannot take. Can't take that. You can't take it. You know, even if I go out and use today, what we've had, the disease can't take that. No doubt. That's already in the book. No doubt. And you know that some of it's don't like it either. It don't. <laughs> motherfucker is goddamn it's it it hates our fucking guts. Because I'm gonna tell you, we are the disease's worst fucking nightmare. That's right. When yeah. somebody walks in that room, 
there's a good chance that they're going to walk out different and give a fuck if it's their first meeting. And if they, not if, when they keep coming, they're going to, people say you can't get it by osmosis. Well, you can't get the depth that we've got by osmosis, but goddamn, you hear it long enough. The shit's going to show up when you ain't in the room. Yeah. It's uh, it's just like when you were talking about hanging out with those criminals, you know, it's, you're going eventually. Exactly. You know, the Birds last feather flock together, baby. That's it. The last <laughs> sentence on this whole IP is exactly what we were talking about. The ultimate weapon for recovery is the recovering addict. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, we are soldiers. I guess you can, uh, I guess we can end it by you telling us what you tell everybody when you hand out that white key tag. <laughs> Fuck the disease. Yeah. Fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> I ain't listening to your bullshit today. I'm fixing to go get in the bus with Bart and a bunch of people from Ripley, and we're going down to Starkville and invade that fucking meeting. Hell yeah. They don't travel. Yeah. We're going to go down there and talk shit. <laughs> Tell them how fucking worthless they are. <laughs> Not really. Yeah. I'm going to do it with love and kindness. Compassion. And compassion. Yeah. Look at that compassion. All right, y'all. So we'll be back uh, next week with another IP. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us on our Living Clean Podcast. This is another platform that we can share our message of recovery, which is an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live. Join that no matter what club. You can contact us through text. The number is 931-306-9364.